The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today is time for our Friday show with our regular guest, great friend to the show, and that's Dr Peter Hammond. And folks, if you are looking for someone to support, now that uh, I no longer uh, take donations, now that I have a full-time job, um, Frontline Fellowship Ministry is well worth your support and uh, so please if you do have the wherewithal to do so please support Frontline Fellowship the link will be in the post for this show along with many other resources that Dr Hammond gives us so let's bring him up right now Peter are you with us? I'm with you yes thank you Andrew thank you Peter and today we've got something that's very timely because the 30th anniversary is going to be coming up next Tuesday the 25th of July it's going to be a sombre occasion, as is today's show. It is the real story of the St. James Massacre 30 years ago. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Andrew, as Christians are under fire throughout the world, especially North Africa and the Middle East, we need to remember the persecuted. We need to learn from their steadfastness and their suffering. And 25 July this year will mark the 30th anniversary of a dreadful atrocity in Cape Town, my hometown, a terrorist attack on a St. James Church of England, which was just down the road from our office and where I lived for a short while too. So we we used to walk to the church. My father was converted there. My brother was converted there. I've got a lot of connections with the church. Frank Retief, the bishop of the church at the time, was a good friend and still is. Well, this attack left 11 people dead and 50 wounded. It started on Sunday, the 25th of July, 1993, about 7.30 p.m., while a congregation of about 1,400 were listening to him of worship, a group of Uppler terrorists, that's of the Pan-African Congress terrorist group, they were trained in Libya, they were uh, communist-supported, Soviet and Red Chinese armed, uh, connected with the Pan-African Congress, which was allied to the African National Congress of Nelson Mandela at the time. They burst into the church and opened fire with automatic weapons. I have an eyewitness account written here, I noticed the handle of the side door facing the congregation turn. Then the two doors were kicked open and a black man wearing some kind of overall was standing in the, drive, in the doorway. He was carrying an assault rifle. As he stepped forward, he raised the rifle, cocked it, and fired it in full automatic directly into the congregation. Another eyewitness said, I saw this man kick open the door next to the stage and holding his rifle from the hip, he opened up on us. 
spraying bullets across a wide arc into the packed congregation. But before he even opened fire, two other black men who seemed to be wearing some olive green uniforms lobbed two hand grenades into the center of the church. There was this trail of smoke from the grenades, a few puffs of smoke from the first shots fired. The grenades were still in the air when he started firing. As I dived for cover under the pew, I heard the two grenades exploded. I looked up and saw pews standing up in the air. The firing went on for a while and then suddenly everything was quiet. Now for many years, actually 40 years, Frontline Fellowships have taken the gospel to war zones. But on Sunday the 25th of July, 1993, the war came to us. Our mission headquarters was just a few meters down the road from St. James on the same road, 3rd Avenue in Kenilworth. Several of our workers were members of the church. Both my brother and father were converted at St. James. I'd just been singing with my daughter Andrea and was about to pray with her before putting her to bed when the phone rang. I wouldn't normally answer it. In fact, my wife's standard instruction was, I'm not available if I'm busy praying with the children. But this time she brought the phone to me, which is extremely unusual. And it was a friend from St. James saying, Peter, it's the worst nightmare. St. James has been attacked by terrorists. Well, that's about the only thing I would accept an interruption for when I was dealing with my children. So I jumped into my car, sped down immediately to St. James. And on the way, my mind was reeling with the implications. I've been a missionary to war zone, so I thought of many friends that were at the church and I had all kinds of vivid memories of blood-splattered churches and scenes of massacres that I'd witnessed in Mozambique and Angola. And as if in sympathy with a storm in many hearts, lightning was flashing across the sky, the heavens wept in a blinding downpour of torrential rain. And so my last few meters as I was after parking the car and running towards the church, I got drenched just before entering the uh, cover of the church sanctuary. And above the roar of the rain, you could hear the air filled with wailing sirens from convoys of ambulances, police vehicles, fire engines were all converging on 3rd Avenue, Kenilworth. There's flashing lights and flashing lightning, lighting up a scene of dazed survivors fleeing from the church. There were weeping churchgoers praying in the rain, frantic relatives searching for loved ones. And I was soaked when I stumbled into the church foyer. The tiles in the foyer were smeared with blood. Inside the church, there were several bodies lying on the bloodstained carpets. And there were shrapnel-scarred pews, wooden pews overturned. There was a big hole in the carpet where one grenade had exploded. I could see prayer books and music sheets and welcome cards and Bibles strewn amongst pools of blood. And the ceiling was pockmarked with shrapnel. There were rescue workers working swiftly and efficiently. Some of the wounded were being cared for. Some people were being carried out in stretches to the waiting ambulances. A broken pew was being used to transport one person because they were short of, of, of stretches. There were pockets of Christians sitting or standing, holding hands and praying. And the police were moving to clear this church sanctuary of all but emergency workers. And then they began to separate eyewitnesses for questioning. Well, I located several friends and then, feeling fairly helpless, began to help serve tea to the shocked survivors. But only later, as I began to hear different testimonies those involved, did the full scale and the real horror of the attack really strike one.
The first person to die was Mrs. Marita Ackerman. She was sitting in the front row. She had shot in the chest close range. She died almost immediately. She had twice triumphed over cancer. She had helped start an outreach ministry to the Kailicha Township, which had mostly caused people from the Eastern Cape. She had initiated an outreach to seamen, especially Russian seamen and Ukrainians passing through the harbour in Cape Town. And Marita left behind her husband, three children, Brahm, Liesel and Pierre, and she was buried on her birthday. There was Mr. Lorenzo Smith, who had his wife Myrtle die in his arms. A piece of shrapnel had pierced her heart from one of the grenades. They'd been married 21 years. And she left behind her husband and two children, Craig and Mandy, who were not hit in the attack because they'd gone out to the children's program uh, across the road. Peter Gordon was wounded in the attack, but he saw his wife Denise murdered next to him. And they had a little daughter, Sarah. There was 17-year-old Richard O'Kill, who flung himself across his two young friends, Lisa and Bonnie, to shield them from the line of fire, and he took a bullet through the head. 21-year-old Jared Harker saw a grenade land in an aisle between their pews, and he leapt on the hand, on the hand grenade and covered it with his body. He absorbed the full impact of the shrapnel and died instantly, of course, but saved many lives, doubtless, because of his self-sacrifice. Did not hesitate, covered the grenade with his body. Jared's younger brother, 13-year-old Wesley, sadly, also died in the attack. They left behind a brother, Sean, 23-year-old, and parents, Denise and Dawn Harker. Four of the slain were Russian and Ukrainian sailors, Valentine Varaska, Pavel Bolechev, Audrey Kachel, and Oleg Karazman. Another victim was Guy Javens. Of those crippled in the attack, the most heartrending situation was that of a Ukrainian sailor, Dmitry Makagon. Both his legs were ripped off when a grenade fell on his lap. His right arm had been, had been so badly mauled that it had to be amputated. Both his eardrums burst in a blast. Dmitry was 23 years old at the time, earning money as a sailor to pay for his wedding upon his return. Well, the St. James Church flew out his fiancée, Olga, and started a fund for the victims of the mask, and he settled in Cape Town. A medical student, Gillian Schumbrucker, narrowly escaped death from a piece of shrapnel, pierced her lung and an artery. Her feet were badly damaged, but she sang a hymn to comfort her friends as she lay bleeding on the church floor. Now, several survivors expressed amazement that more people had not been killed. Police investigators agreed. The M26 fragmentary hand grenades had nails strapped around to provide additional shrapnel. If Jared hadn't absorbed the one grenade with his body, many more would have been killed. And if another member of the congregation had not shot back, wounding one of the terrorists, many more would have been shot. Because after the grenades exploded, one of our missionaries, my deputy director at the time, Shaw van Veek, was at the very back of the church. He said initially he thought it was some church skit, but when pieces of of the pews started to splinter and he saw somebody's um, hair and skull flying through the air, um, he knew, no, this is, this is not a skit, this is the real thing. He fell to his knees, drew his 38 snub-nosed revolver, and from a distance of about 50 meters, wounded the terrorist who was firing into the congregation. 
The shooting stopped immediately and the attackers fled. Charles then pursued the terrorists into the parking lot and fired at the getaway cars that sped off. They were standing around the car with their assault rifles resting on the hips, sort of aiming through the sky, obviously at the ready, probably waiting for the survivors to flee out the door so that they could kill more as they fled. So he came around the side, he went out a back entrance and came around the side. So they were doubtless ready to have anyone coming through the main doors. But he came around a corner of that they hadn't expected and using the wall as cover, he fired at them and then they sped into the car and disappeared into 3rd Avenue. It was a green Datsun and the police later found the car with some blood stains indicating at least one of the attackers was wounded. And the DNA from that helped to uh, settle the conviction of one of the terrorists who was the one who was actually shooting and to the congregation that Charles had wounded. Now, if you compare the St. James Massacre with similar atrocities in Zimbabwe and Mozambique and Angola, which I've documented, and Sudan, it becomes apparent many more people would have died had Charles not fired back. An official commendation by the police commissioner, N.H. Acker, stated, on 25 July 1993, Charles Adrian van Veek endangered his own life in warding off the attack perpetrated in the St. James Congregation Kenilworth. His action in pursuing the suspects on foot and returning fire prevented further loss of life. One of the suspects was wounded in the incident and was later arrested. Well, in numerous reports on the St. James Massacre, the questions were asked, who could possibly want to attack a congregation of Christians worshipping in a church? What could anyone hope to accomplish through such senseless slaughter? And to these questions, we should add, how should we as Christians respond? Well, when I saw the shocking carnage in St. James Church, it immediately brought similar bloody scenes flooding back into my mind. For now it's over 40 years. Back then I hadn't been in the field that long, but um, I've personally come across similar atrocities, especially in Angola, Rwanda, Mozambique, Nigeria, and Sudan. Um, for example, in 1983, Filimo troops killed five pastors and burned five churches in Mosquito Village in Zambezia province in Mozambique. In September 1983, Filimo soldiers killed 50 Christians and burned a church down in Pasura. At Chalisa Evangelical Church in Angola, Cuban troops shot 150 Christians during a church service. At New Adams Farm in Zimbabwe, 16 missionaries and their children were murdered in November 1987. Over a five-year period, between 2010 and 2015, Muslim mobs and Boko Haram terrorists in Nigeria bombed and burned down 1,000 churches, killing 17,000 Christians in Nigeria. Sudan, hundreds of churches have been bombed and burned, which I document in my Faith Under Fire in Sudan book. Many hundreds of churches have been attacked in Syria and Iraq and Egypt and Ethiopia and Eritrea, and all churches in Somalia were destroyed by 1993. We could continue to recount literally hundreds of similar atrocities against Christian churches, especially in the Middle East. The fact is, churches have often been a target of Muslim extremists and Marxist terrorists. So the reason why churches are targeted should not surprise us. Those who hate God love death. Now, in answer to the second question, what could someone hope to accomplish through attacking a church? The aim of terrorists is to instill fear in the hearts of target community to paralyze people into inactivity and non-resistance, to induce people to flee the country or at least to be too afraid to fight back. That's the goal. And an additional aim of terrorism could be to provoke an unreasoned and extreme response, to provoke counter-terrorism, which could then be exploited for propaganda purposes. 
So you can see there's many times that churches may be attacked, and then occasionally you might get a Christian counterattacking a mosque or something like that. And then, of course, that's where the media focuses. The aim of persecution is not to kill Christians. Sending Christians to meet the Lord in heaven hardly achieves the purpose of evil. No, the aim of persecution is to shock Christians into fear and inactivity, to paralyze and neutralize the church. Only if you give in to fear and allow ourselves to be intimidated into silence and compromise, only then does the enemy achieve his objectives. This reminds me of the testimony of some people in Angola that I was having supper with. Uh, they were ex-Swapo terrorists. They'd served with the Swapo guerrillas, and they'd somehow fallen foul of the commissars and had ended up in a concentration camp. And I was having supper with these ex-communists uh, in Namibia, and they were explaining what had happened. And they were all in a pit at the lowest point in this camp where all the sewage and slush and filth uh, flooded into. So it was a real disease factory. And they, they were in this pit, and there was just... Uh, sort of bamboo branches and thorn bushes over them uh, so that rain and everything else would come in. And uh, they said, you know, standing in the sludge and the filth and all that, and occasionally one would be pulled out and they'd be flogged or tortured in some way, hung up, strung up and so on, whipped. And at one point, one of them said to the communists who were torturing them, why don't you just kill us and get it over with? And the response they got was very informative. It was, oh, no we don't want to send to kill you and send you to heaven with God. No, we want you to curse Christ and come to hell with us for all eternity. Well, that's insightful. So how should we respond to terrorism? Well, this should encourage us to never betray the faith for which martyrs have died. The only appropriate response to such massacres and atrocities is to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, to refuse to bow to the New World Order, to refuse to bow to the communist goals or their agenda, to give in to atheism or disbelief. No, the, we dare not allow the fear of man to divert us from fulfilling the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We are to fear God alone and we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We still love our neighbors ourselves, making disciples, teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. Now, in this context, it is shameful that some sought to exploit this tragedy to enhance their public image and to promote interfaith services. Believe it or not, immediately after the attack on St. James, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a well-known world liberation theologian, liberal who denies the virgin birth and a lot of other things, basically he was the public face of the ANC inside South Africa, he would be promoting Mandela. And he is like the false prophet for the false messiah of Mandela. And Tutu um, got his press statement out almost immediately. So the next morning, as the reports of the St. James Massacre went out, people were reading Desmond Tutu's press statement, which gave the impression it was one of his churches that were attacked. Now, this may confuse people, but in South Africa, there are two Church of England. There's the Church of England in South Africa, which is evangelical, in no way affiliated with the World Council of Churches, and true to the 39 Articles and the prayer book and so on. And then there's the Anglican Church, or the Church of the Province of South Africa, which is affiliated with the Lambeth Conference and which is World Council of Churches affiliates, which Desmond Tutu was in charge of. Now, there's a sharp legal division in South Africa between the Church of England, which is evangelical, and the Church of the Province of South Africa, otherwise known as the Anglicans, which normally would 
be synonymous with Church of England, but legally in South Africa it's not because there's been a sharp division with the Church of the Province of South Africa, Anglicans being World Council Churches, Liberals, pro-abortion, all that, whereas the Church of England, South Africa is evangelical, pro-life and, and in many ways conservative. So Desmond Tutu immediately organized a campaign for people to uh, donate to his organization because of this persecution. Now, I got calls from America and Britain on why did white right-wing extremists attack this poor black church and uh, of Desmond Tutu? You know, how could these horrible racist South Africans do such a thing? And that was the kind of report going all over the world. White racist right-wing extremists attacked a black church in Cape Town. And, well, in fact, it was the opposite. It was it was a white church with some multiracial people. So it, it was coloured and white people in a in a church. It was not a black church at all. It was in a, uh, a white suburb, Kenilworth. And uh, it was the Church of England. It was not in any way affiliated with Desmond Tutu's Anglican church at all. But that was the reports going out. And I had people who happened to be in Tutu's office for some contracts at that time, seeing huge amounts of support coming in, checks and so on, to him uh, in the wake of the St. James attack, believing that his people had been targeted by white right-wing extremists. And, of course, that that's bad enough. But he went further than that. Desmond Tutu then organized a big... The, he turned up at the site of the massacre at St. James with his um, media entourage demanding access. Well, a policeman on duty said, I'm sorry, there's a crime zone, you're not allowed in. And Desmond Tutu's response was, I'm the archbishop of the denomination, which, of course, was deceptive because Desmond Tutu knows that he's not the head of the Church of England in South Africa. He's the head of the Church of Province South Africa. But the policeman on duty probably didn't know the difference and was intimidated by this man in these archbishop robes, fancy dress. Well, where's the presiding bishop of the Church of England? Well, he's too busy caring for the widows and orphans and the uh, widows and widowers who were grieving. He was doing his job as a pastor and preparing for the funeral, while Desmond Tutu was organizing the press conference inside and got pictures of him inside the church, which, of course, brought far more money in for him. My good friend, Dr. Ian Paisley of Northern Ireland, published my report on all this in his revivalist magazine, Northern Ireland, with the title, The Lying Archbishop, The Vileness of Tutu, was the subtitle, which got me quite a lot of criticism. I was hauled before the denomination for embarrassing them by telling the truth, mind you, but still. Um, so this is a letter I sent to the Cape newspapers at that time. It is hard for us to take politicians or Archbishop Tutu seriously when they so shamelessly milk tragedies like the St. James Massacre for media coverage and to advance their political agenda. I find offensive that certain priests and politicians have cynically exploited the Sunday Massacre for their political ends. With the ANC's abysmal human rights record of placing landmines in farm roads, car bombs in public streets, limpet mines in shopping centres and restaurants, they are the last people who have the right to condemn violence. The thousands of victims of ANC necklace murders, petrol bombings, stonings, shootings, and those dissidents tortured in ANC concentration camps bear eloquent testimony to the ANC's real position on violence. As for Tutu, how could he barge into St. James and lie to the policeman on duty, claiming that he was the head of the denomination in order to gain access for his media to the site of the massacre. Most people are not aware that the Church of England, South Africa, is an entirely separate denomination from Tutu's Church of the Province, South Africa. 
Yet surely Tutu is aware he is not the head of the Church of England in South Africa. For Tutu to have gained access for his media entourage to St. James by deception meant to have desecrated the sanctuary by turning it into a media circus to exploit this tragedy for his image overseas and fundraising is despicable. Other political activists in the guise of the priesthood have suggested that we use this opportunity for a reconciliation interfaith service. Well, St. James is a fully multiracial church. It's opened its doors to all races at all times. The church has been outreached to Kailicha, offers Bible studies and causa on a weekly basis. St. James has always worked for reconciliation, first to God and then to man. St. James does not have to use this tragic event to prove our commitment to reconciliation. The Church of England South Africa is an evangelical denomination which holds to the inerrancy of the Bible as God's perfect word. The Church of England South Africa holds to the full deity of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his bodily resurrection from the grave. We proclaim salvation by the grace of God through his atonement of Christ, received by faith. For this reason, it would betray the martyrs who were killed on Sunday if we were to participate in the interfaith service planned in the Cape Town City Hall with those who reject this gospel. The greatest tribute and memorial which we can erect in honor of the victims of the massacre is to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word, the Bible. May many more come to Christ in true faith and repentance. So that was a letter that I wrote and which was published in the local uh, Cape Town Argus. Well, I've noticed whenever the negotiation process was stalling and reaching a deadlock, some high-profile atrocity occurred, which was then used to accelerate the process of hurtling the country towards a transitional executive control which the liberation forces so designed. The expressions of outrage after every atrocity was hard to take seriously. Their actions stained with the blood of thousands of innocent victims spoke much louder than their words. Which brings us to the main question, how should we as Christians respond in this or any other crisis or tragedy? We always need to turn to God and cast all our burdens and frustrations upon him in prayer. We need to seek answers and guidance from studying the word of God. Many survivors of similar atrocities found uh, tremendous comfort and strength through praying the Psalms. At the midweek service, three days after the massacre, the church was packed almost to capacity, overflowing actually. Bishop Frank Retief opened the service by reading Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set the arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright and heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, God will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. Well, Frank Retief said that many had commented on the calmness of the St. James congregation in the face of the tragedy. He said, while we are shocked, stunned, shattered, hurt and angry at the senselessness of what happened, we also have a sense of peace. Well, at the Sunday service, one week after the massacre, more than 2,000 people packed the church and the overflow facilities. So if the aim of the terrorists had been to terrify people into avoiding the church, they clearly failed. And at that service, Frank Retief outlined the biblical response to the tragedy, which I summarized as follows. The world is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. Do make a meaningful contribution to improving society, but don't get too caught up in materialism and personal ambitions. We won't live forever. Number two, we believe in the day of judgment. If evil is not finally punished, then this world is meaningless. The wicked may seem to prosper for a time, 
but a just God will deal with sin. Only Christians have the spiritual resources to cope with such tragedy. Number four, life is three. Number three, life is uncertain. None of us know how long we're going to live. Spiritual apathy is dangerous. We need to be jolted awake. Number four, there's a constant need to re-examine ourselves. Is your faith genuine or is it nominal? Watch out for temporary emotional motivation. Be done with empty words. Do away with frivolous things. Be serious about your faith. Get involved in the life of your church and the lives of others. And number five, do not be ruled by fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Our trust must be in God. We must fear God and no one else. Well, as we learn to cope with the shock and the sense of loss, many testimonies of God's grace and sovereignty began to surface. The attack took place on St. James Day, the day when the church commemorates the first martyrdom of an apostle in Acts 12. The attack took place five minutes after children had left for a children's service in a separate venue in the Sunday school. The attackers had apparently wanted to burst through several doors simultaneously, but all the other doors were locked on that cold winter night. Shaw commented that where he was sitting towards the back of the church, he heard the door rattling and, and wondered why the ushers standing there didn't open the door. And he even was tempted to get up and open the exit doors at the back, which someone was banging on from the outside. But fortunately, no one did. And so uh, all of the outside doors were locked, and they, that's why they came through the front door only. There was meant to be a crossfire, which would have, of course, been more devastating. Now, excerpts of the unpreached sermon of Reverend Ross Anderson were printed in the local newspapers, and one verse in particular stood out. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. John eleven twenty five. One man testified, as he pushed his wife's head down, he felt a bullet whistle over the back of his hand and heard it slam into the wall behind. Another husband pushed his wife flat seconds before a bullet smashed into the backrest against which she had been sitting. And the Ukrainian seaman Dmitriv Vladimir testified how Marika Ackerman had led him to the Lord. I've been a seaman for 28 years and never in this time have I met such a warm, kind-hearted person like Marita. I met Marita in October last year, my first time in Cape Town. Marita gave me papers to read about our Lord. Before that, I was an atheist. Marita invited me and my crew to church and attitudes changed as we began to read and discuss the Bible. In fact, just three weeks before the massacre, 72 Russian and Ukrainian sailors had made public commitments to Christ at St. James. Marita's favorite Bible verse was Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Other members of the church shared testimonies like this. Possessions and position are no longer important to us. These things only last for a time. And when we keep our mind on God, God keeps our mind at peace. And Psalm 46 verse 1 was quoted by many. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, which, of course, is the verse that inspired a mighty fortress as our God hymn of Martin Luther. Well, on the order of service bulletins handed out at the main funeral service on 29th of July, this passage was quoted from Romans 5. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In our Frontline Fellowship official letter of sympathy to St. James Church, we included the following message. Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
You cannot destroy the church by attacking buildings. The church is not buildings, but people. People who love the Lord Jesus Christ. People who have a relationship with God as their Father. People who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You cannot kill Christians by sending them to heaven. Death for the Christian is not final. Death for the Christian is not fatal. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I rejoice in the assurance that the great work which God has begun through St. James will not falter or be distracted from the Great Commission. And these sort of traumatic experiences, which affected us all in the mission heavily, you know, it wasn't just Charles who shot back and myself who witnessed it immediately afterwards. Uh, everyone in our mission was affected. And we've been dealing with war zones and helping persecute churches for a whole existence. But we were so emotionally caught up because this was in our neighborhood and it was people we knew. And so uh, we would often find ourselves just breaking down in tears during the day and overwhelmed. And while Shaw went to counseling, um, I didn't, and I'm sorry I didn't, because, you know, we all suffered some post-traumatic stress from this kind of terrorist attack. But um, it reminds us of the reality of the spiritual war in which each one of us is engaged. We may not always see such a visible physical attack in the church, but it's happening through Hollywood and through the media in so many different ways in the education system. There's so many ways in which the spirit of the world, World Economic Forum, New World Disorder, the past should not be are attacking our Christian faith and our Western civilization in so many ways. But every now and then you see something visible, violent, and cruel and callous like this. And it just reminds you of the reality. We are in a spiritual world war. And we're in a life and death struggle between the kingdom of God and the force of Satan. And outside of Christ, man is desperately wicked. It is appointed unto man wants to die, not that the judgment. God is just and God will ultimately reward the faithful and he will punish the wicked. So we need to live our lives to the glory of God to the fullest. As C.T. Studd said, the great British cricket captain turned pioneer missionary, you only have one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, what uh, I'm going to be including a link as well. For those of you who listen to the traditional Christian message on the Sunday that Peter writes, uh, recently I've been including the link to the actual article that I'm uh, reading from. And so you can get images in there, you can get other links, and there is a link to a article on FrontlineMissionSA.org. That's FrontlineMissionSA.org. From the 25th of July 2018, the St. James Massacre 25 years ago. And we actually did a show in October of that year. So, you know, getting on for five years ago now on the St. James Massacre that I was embarrassed to say I was unfamiliar with. And it truly is a shocking event, as uh, you can hear uh, from Peter, who was uh, an eyewitness uh, to its immediate aftermath and obviously living with it these 30 years since. But one thing that uh, I've got here is I've got the original post for the show we recorded nearly five years ago. And there's a couple of bits that um, I was going to uh, run by Peter that are in this show post. And this is uh, where I've written, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu chose not to criticise the terrorist, but instead criticised the man in the St. James congregation who defended the church. And this is the gentleman who shot back at the terrorists, causing them to flee, which for me proves the wisdom of Jesus Christ's doctrine to keep and bear arms. So what can you tell us about uh, how Bishop Desmond Tutu... That, uh, that is so interesting. Yes, the very next morning, 
the Monday morning of the 26th of July, there was an article in the Cape Times on the front page where Desmond Tutu condemns a firearm in church. Says, it's not on having congregants bringing uh, firearms to church. And he criticized Scharf and Bake for having had a 38 snub-nosed revolver in the, in the church. Now, remember, South Africa was effectively in a, a war at that time, and Shaw was a uh, reserve officer in, in the South African Defence Force, anyway, an infantry officer. But um, he had a revolver on him, mainly because he's a missionary of ours, and, and he heard many a story from me about churches being attacked. And he had sat in the church thinking, what would I do if this church came under attack? And so he'd worked out this scenario, and Shaw had worked out that, well, the biggest concern was not to get anyone in the crossfire, so he determined he'd have to kneel down and rest his forearm on the pew in front to stabilize so that he didn't accidentally get any of the uh, congregants. So he immediately did that. He had a battle plan, got in his, uh, dropped to one knee, rested his forehand on the uh, pew in front, aimed carefully because, of course, you don't want to get any poor, innocent person to crossfire. The police said if he had accidentally, he would have been charged with manslaughter. So it's a very serious thing. Um, you open in a crowded place, you've got to be sure you're getting the, the bad guy and not getting any of the innocent people caught in the crossfire. So, uh, Shaw shot back. Now, Frank, uh, Des, Desmond Tutu taking his time the next morning to condemn the congregant who shot back, but he didn't take any time to condemn the terrorist. Now, I would have thought having assault rifles and grenades in a church is more serious than somebody having a snub-nosed revolver at the back and using it to defend innocent people and to stop the attack. Uh, by the way, that brings up another point. The aim of the terrorists that night had been to attack first St. James, which is uh, Church of England, and then to go up the road to to Christ Church, which is Anglican Church, actually. That would have been one of Tutu's churches, and hit them. Uh, Christ Church was a very popular, uh, charismatically inclined Anglican church, uh, very evangelical and a vibrant place of spiritual life then. So they planted two churches in succession in the area. But because they encountered resistance, and we actually had the commander who issued the command for this attack come to our fellowship um, devotions once and give us testimony later, Litlapa McClele. He wrote a book on his life and all that. And uh, Shaw ended up visiting all the terrorists related in their families and sharing the gospel with them and going to their homes. And, you know, he testified against them in court. He did everything he could to see they got the best sentence possible. But then he visited them in prison and took them Bibles and visited their families and when they came out, he uh, continued a ministry with them. So he truly loved his neighbors, and then he loved his enemy too uh, by giving them the gospel. But uh, they said that they'd chosen an English-speaking suburb in the southern suburbs in a liberal area because they thought no one would be armed in the church. So they never expected any uh, resistance, and if they knew there was someone who was armed, they wouldn't have attacked that church, which is interesting. Um so obviously, Shaw did save lives, but he didn't just save the lives of the people at St. James. He saved the lives of people at Christchurch because the second attack was cancelled once they encountered resistance and had a wounded person, even though it was a fairly minor hand wound. But still, uh, that wound to one of the people made them cancel the rest of the attacks that night. And the goal wasn't just to shoot up the church. It was also to barricade the doors, throw firebombs and petrol bombs, and have the people burned to death inside the church. So they had planned to kill as many of the people in the church building as possible at night. And if there hadn't been resistance, the death toll would have been huge. It could have run to the hundreds, actually, especially if you had the attack on Christchurch afterwards. So, yeah, the bishop was more angry that how dare a congregant come to church and worship having a revolver. 
then a bacterius attacking the church. Yes. Um, and uh, let me... Um, a quick question, Peter. Um, when we put this show out, uh, nearly five years ago, there's a note here that there are over 400 million Christians worldwide that are suffering from persecution. That's gone up considerably, hasn't it, since then? That has, sadly. So, especially in the Middle East, thanks to the uh, so-called Arab Spring, which uh, Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Clinton promoted. And uh, yes, it's gone a lot worse since America removed the positive government of um, uh, Saddam Hussein, who at least protected Christians in um, Iraq and uh, replaced them with people who persecute the Christians. The Christians in Iraq were 1.6 million when America invaded it, and now there's less than 200,000 Christians left in Iraq. It might be down to 100,000 by now. I think my stats are a bit old. And Syria is one of the last countries in the Middle East that provides religious freedom, at least under um, uh, President Assad. And, uh, of course, ISIS, which was started by the American CIA and so on, under Biden's administration and his vice president and Barack Hussein Obama. ISIS has been murdering a lot of Christians in Syria, and... Uh, Many of the people in the Syrian army are Christians because they know the only thing standing between them and being beheaded is Assad's secular government uh, who protects Christians. So uh, definitely there's a lot of Christians being persecuted today. But the last, the last statistics I had from a few years ago is 400 million Christians in the world are targeted by the governments, are persecuted. And that includes places like North Korea, Red China, uh, going through uh, most of the Middle East and so on. So um Plainly, we're living in a time of tremendous persecution. Even India, which is a democracy, has horrible mob attacks on churches and Christians being killed there. Pakistan, of course. There's um, some places like the uh, Moroccan Islands and the Comor uh, Islands and the Indian Ocean are terrible places of persecution. Somalia, there's virtually not a single church pastor left alive. They've persecuted them so severely. And that's a lot of the concern of our mission, serving persecuted Christians, smuggling to them Bibles, helping them with medical aid, chaplains, doing what we can to support resistance fighters in the areas and uh, train their chaplains and everything else we can do, medical uh, uh, training them, medics, providing them with medical equipment and sometimes providing schools, Bible colleges and um, textbooks. Uh, we've dug wells for them, delivered them corn and seed uh, for agriculture and tools. So helping the persecuted is a major vision of Frontline Fellowship. And every year we try to mobilize an international day of prayer for the persecuted on the second Sunday in November. This year, that'll be the 12th of November. We're trying to promote international day of prayer for the persecuted. And we've got videos, audios, PowerPoints, and articles and news on our idop-africa.org website. So www.idop, short for International Day of Prayer hyphenafrica.org. We handle the Africa part. Open Doors and Voice of Motors handle other parts of the world, and Frontline Fellowship handles the Africa website. So idop-africa.org website and Facebook page, you'll find a lot of resources on how to mobilize your church for prayer and action on behalf of the persecuted. And our mission sites primarily got emphasis on Africa with African posters, prayer information, news updates, and videos including Bible studies on persecution and what we can do to prepare for persecution or help others to endure with government hostility. 
Thank you, Andrew. Back to you. Thank you, Peter. And um, another uh, topic I'd like uh, to touch on is, um, and also, of course, Ukraine. We've heard all these stories earlier this year about Christian churches in Ukraine that were targeted by the Ukrainian authorities. So you can see what's really going on there. Um, Yes, in fact, I I can add some information there. I've got a good friend who's working as a missionary in Ukraine. I've got another person who's, in fact, the granddaughter of of P.W. Borta, the last Christian president of South Africa, um, Skalk Vaskalki's daughter, um, uh, Shana Vaskalki, she's a missionary in Ukraine and uh, was there when the war broke out too. We contacted her to ask if she's coming out and she said, no, I'm more needed here now than ever. So uh, I know people also in Donetsk, in the eastern part, the Donbass region of Ukraine, which is independent and under Russian protection now. So I hear a lot of interesting things. And amongst other things is the Ukrainian government of Zelensky has banned all political parties except its own, has banned all media except for the government-approved media. So there's no freedom of the press. There's no no real democracy. They're saying they don't see the need for elections, which is, I think, meant to be coming up next year. But more serious than that, they've banned an entire uh, denomination, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, not the Russian Orthodox Church, that was banned already, but they banned the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They've arrested monks and nuns and beaten up priests and dragged them out of the church, and and they've closed, bolted, barricaded, chained um, churches and not allowed people in. They've damaged um, places of worship. And so do you think you can ban an entire denomination and uh, arrest pastors and um, ministers and journalists and opposition political parties too, and still be called a democracy. That seems pretty bizarre, but people need to add Ukraine to the list of countries that persecute Christians. Thank you, Peter. And what can you tell us about um, what the... We know about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up by Nelson Mandela and led by Desmond Tutu. What did they do with regard to these terrorists five years after the attack? Yes, well, this is actually also a pretty shocking postscript, is Nelson Mandela set up a so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is something like a Nuremberg-Stalin show trials um, propaganda stunt, in which they sought to humiliate um, people who had fought to defend the country and imprison some of them, such as the head of the Conservative Party in South Africa at the time, um, he was locked up for having uh, lent his gun to a Polish refugee who shot dead Chris Harney, the head of the Umkuntu, he says, the terrorist arm of the Southern Communist Party. So Chris Harney's uh, assassin is still in jail today. Um, they would not rescind his sentence and so on, killing the, the head assassin of the ANC's terrorist wing. But the terrorists who attacked St. James were all set free by Desmond Tutu. He had the power under the president to rescind the sentences of these terrorists. And he did on the basis that what they did was acting for political uh, purposes. They had political motivation attacking the church. So somebody who, in a time of war, shot the head of the terrorist wing of the Sam Communist Party, he stays in jail. But the five terrorists connected with the attack on St. James, they all got free, uh, including the one, McLa- uh, McLaupa, who fired directly into congregation who shall wounded. And um, it does seem a bit bizarre. So the lying archbishop who 
milked the campaign for promoting interfaith and a political agenda and for his own fundraising campaign, he let these terrorists free. It seems like a bit of a conflict of interest to have given him the task, but he was, after all, the false prophet of the false messiah. Mandela's priest was Tutu, and Tutu um, did his job as a propagandist, and he ensured that the terrorists didn't spend that long in prison for what should have actually been a capital offence. I mean, murdering civilians, how can that be acceptable? When our worker, Shaw went to the cell and spoke to the uh, terrorist who had uh, Kai McCormer, who had fired into congregation, and he asked him uh, how he felt about it. The man was actually proud of what he did. Um, he was, by the way, under 18 when he did it. He he was machine gunning the congregation. And to him, it was just he was killing whites. And because of apartheid, that was justified. He, he saw his terrorism as totally justified. And he thought of himself as a hero. And he looked down on the common criminals around him because you know, what he had done was for political motivation and therefore he, is, he was a freedom fighter and they were just criminals. So he didn't see himself as a bad person, even though he was a mass murderer. And of course, he's a Marxist and atheist. But Charles did confront him with the gospel and give him a Bible. And uh, so the man had more chance than he gave his victims. Oh, by the way, uh, the man who the man who Tutu released who had done the machine gunning, he got arrested a few months later for uh, bank robberies and armed uh, robberies of cash and transit um, heists. And uh, this time he stayed in prison. So he is back in prison, but not for having killed uh, innocent people. Interesting how his contempt for common criminal and now he's in prison as a common criminal. Yes. You can't make this sort of stuff up. It, you know, truth is more incredible than fiction. It is, indeed. And um, I can't understand why I can't find this. Uh, I'd, I'd had it, um, I believed it would be in my uh, index for the synagogue of Satan. But I'll give it one more uh, look into the later edition to see if I can find it. Uh, but we're coming up to the end uh, anyway. No, it was quite interesting figures as to um, what the 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 actual amount of of um, ANC people that were found to be a, a lot of carried out a lot more attacks by this Truth and Reconciliation Commission than the uh, whites who supported apartheid. That was basically what it summed up, but I can't seem to find the entry. So uh, anyway. Um, um. There is, there is quite a lot more about this attack from the other side. And that is, our friend Skulk Vaskoki later came to us. He is the uh, president P.W. Border's son-in-law. He married the, the first daughter, um, Razan uh, Borta, who was a good friend of ours too. Razan Borta uh, battled cancer the same way my wife did and passed away last year. I spoke at her funeral, gave the tribute. But Skulk came to us to get his book published, Under Fire in South Africa, where it's got his story of being a policeman on the border and being the president's bodyguard and investigating the St. James massacre and the uh, Plant Hollywood bombings and a whole lot of other things. And then he finally got personally ambushed, shot up by a uh, assassination team and uh, how he survived having 40-something bullets pumped into his car. Uh, he, he, has, he had five bullets pumped into him 
and he's still got an assault rifle bullet lodged in his spine, which they can't get out. It's too dangerous. But he recovered a, a being riddled with bullets uh, by this assassination team uh, on the highway at Russia um, on our motorway five. And he's written a book, Under Fire in South Africa, where he gives a story of how they caught those terrorists and how they uh, managed to dig out the story. It was quite involved. He's involved in the gang unit, covert intelligence unit. And uh, the St. James massacre also heavily affected him and his people too. And uh, to hear about it from the police investigation side was intriguing too. They had real answers to prayer and breakthroughs, how they managed to catch these people as well. But um, it was a time of madness. And to think that there's ministers of the gospel who still um, wanted to let the terrorists go free, it just boggles the mind. And by the way, the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, the Pope were pretty silent about this atrocity. I think the idea is if you kill white people in South Africa and you black, it's acceptable. So it seems just like the shooting down of the Rhodesian airliners and killing of civilian survivors was never condemned by the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope of Rome. Um, it seems that uh, there's selective um, outrage. Whatever you do to whites and Christians is somehow acceptable. And uh, there's certain people who can get away with any crime and they are immune from from criticism or rebuke and apparently from even serving time in prison. Yes, and uh, thank you for that, Peter. I've just found this um, uh, entry. It's under uh, 1964 uh, after, I've just added it as a footnote really, to when Nelson Mandela was jailed on the 12th of June of that year. That's why I couldn't find it. I was looking for the year. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was headed up by Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, in 1995 and instructed to investigate alleged crimes of the apartheid regime. Interestingly, this commission discovers that whilst the apartheid regime were responsible for the deaths of 500 of their black political opponents over the years, the ANC were responsible for the deaths of 22,000 of their black political opponents, nearly 50 times more than the so-called oppressive regime and of their fellow blacks who they claim to be representing. So any comments on that before we go? Yes, we've seen that time and again. When people talk about the people who've died under some regime they don't like, they'd like to link even the death toll of the people they themselves as the liberators have done. You see this with Rhodesia how they will add the many people who were murdered by the terrorists under the death toll that they put to the account of, of the Ian Smith regime that was, of course, defending these innocents. And I even see that with the Second World War. Germany often gets blamed for the civilians murdered by the uh, bombers or from the Marxist Red Army on the ground. And uh, extraordinary how often uh, they will uh, blame the loser for every death, including the deaths that the attackers caused. And... Uh, so I think there's a standard campaign that, you know, you, the people you're not allowed to defend and the people who are not around to defend themselves, they get settled with the full account. And uh, history is rewritten. As Karl Marx said, the first battlefield is the rewriting of history, which is why it's important we remember these things. I was an eyewitness to the aftermath and I did the research. And I think programs like this, we need to share. People need to know what actually happened. And yes, at the time, the newspapers portrayed this as poor black Christians of Desmond Tutu being murdered by white right-wing extremists, but the facts were exactly the opposite. And you can never trust the newspaper headlines at the time. You've got to wait for some independent research, get confirmation, don't accept the standard version. We know that the 
mass media lies and we should be awfully skeptical and put buckets of salt over our shoulder when we get any of these reports from the usual suspects. They are professionalized and the mainstream media is basically a disinformation campaign. And as for Hollywood, inspired by real events and um, you know, based on a true story, films are normally a complete distortion where the facts might where the names might be the same, but the facts have been changed to protect the innocent and to demonize uh, the victims, to protect the guilty, I should say, and demonize the uh, victims. Yes, thank you, Peter. And before we go, can you let the audience know how they can contact you and where they can find your work? Certainly. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. Our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontline Mission SA, short for South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org. Um, the books I've written, Security and Survival in an, uh, Security and Survival Handbook, which includes a whole accounts on the St. James Massacre and so on. We also have the book Under Fire in South Africa by Skalk Baskahi from the policeman's perspective on not only that, but a whole lot of other part of South African history and fighting terrorism. And... Uh, you will also find um, uh, other reports of ours on persecution, church, Holocaust in Rwanda, and the killing fields of Mozambique, slavery, terrorism, Islam, undefined Sudan. And uh, we've got a website in America which sells these books too for those in North America. That's frontlinemissionna.org. So NA for North America is another option. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay, folks, so... That is the show for today. Please remember victims and their families of the St. James Massacre in your prayers. I want to thank Peter for joining us today. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.